passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, our special guest speaker. Good morning, my name is Stephen. I'm the family pastor at our Crosswinds Spencer campus. And the video that you just saw was from our kids camp, which is uh, Spencer Crosswinds VBS. And uh, we had a great time this year. We, um, last year we had about 65 kids. And so we issued a challenge to our church that we had a goal of getting 100 kids to sign up for kids camp. And we had 95 roughly kids sign up. And so it was a privilege to, to serve those kids, uh, to teach them about Jesus for the week, um, to do twists and turns just like you guys did, and see those kids come and ask questions and want to know about Jesus. And, and kids from our community who didn't have a church home, they, they got to be a part of uh, that and us to welcome families. And so we just wanted to share that uh, with you and what God's doing in Spencer. And so this morning we are continuing our series called Broken Vessels looking at various people from the Bible and how God uses them, even though they are imperfect, ordinary, broken, or often messed up people for God's glory. And so we as people love stories. Whether you read books, watch movies, listen to audiobooks, however you do it, I have not met someone who doesn't love a good story. And our Western storytelling wants us to be able to see ourselves in the heroes. It's why little girls ask for Elsa and Anna outfits, boys dress up like superheroes, Captain America, Iron Man, or Batman, and grown men buy lightsabers. And sometimes we read the Bible through our cultural sense, looking for ways of storytelling, looking for heroes, or like Aesop's fables, the tortoise and the hare, or the boy who cried wolf, we look for moral lessons and rules to live by or teach our kids to make sure that they turn out as good people. But these aspects of storytelling is not at all what the Bible is. I love this quote from the Jesus Storybook Bible. It says, Now some people think that the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. And so, yes, I'm, I'm quoting a children's Bible because I think we need to hear it. Too often I hear people talk like the Bible is a book of heroes or just moral lessons and rules, and it's just not true. It's not around to make you feel better about life. The Bible is primarily about God. It's about Jesus foremost. He is the main character. The Bible is not a Western blockbuster trying to get you hyped up about heroes and making you feel a part of the story or a fairy tale with some lessons. The book you have in your hand is written in English, but it was not originally. And the book Judges, which is what we're going to be looking at today, is written in Hebrew in a different time period for a different culture. 
in a completely different part of the world. So for today, I want us to just kind of take off our Westerner hat, that Western mindset. I want to ask you to join me in humbly asking God to show us what he wants us to see in the story of Gideon this morning, not just what I get out of it. And we're literally going to do that together this morning. So I'm going to ask, would you stand? And we're actually going to say a corporate prayer together. I'll start us off, um, and then we'll just continue saying it together, and it should be up on the screen. Gracious and loving God, Be seated. So usually we would read the entire passage and then talk about it, but since this story is so narrative-driven, it is such a good story, that I'm going to read a little bit and talk about it so that we get to see the story unfold as if we're reading it for the first time. We can get the best picture possible. And so in order for us to get the best picture possible, I want to kind of set the scene of what's going on in Judges, because context and understanding is so important. And just a quick side note, if you're looking for a resource to help you with understanding historical context, context within a book, uh, or even what, what was going on in the Middle East, I encourage you to check out the Bible Project online. They have great videos going over each of the books of the Bible, uh, and even a podcast helping you how to read the Bible. So the book of Joshua, backing up for just a second, the book of Joshua ends with a covenant renewal. Joshua reminds the people of God's faithfulness and then has them renew the covenant. They committed to worshiping the Lord and only the Lord. And then this leads into the book of Judges, in which we see right off the back, Judah lead and follow the Lord. They, They go where they're supposed to go. They fight. They conquer their part of the land. But then it's a steep decline, that the rest of the people fail repeatedly. The book of Judges is not a book of heroes, and that's actually what I was taught as a kid. Look at these heroes you should, you should follow. Look, Samson's just this Captain America in the Bible. It's not a story of heroes, but rather it's an immense tragedy of the decline of God's people that continues until God's people are completely unrecognizable. They are no longer holy and set apart. They have worshipped false gods and become gods in their own eyes. And so Judges 21-25, which is the summary of Judges and is repeated multiple times, sets up what Israel was like. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So really, Israel looked just like the people around them. Instead of being set apart, instead of being holy, instead of being different, they became chameleons. They adopted the culture and the gods of all the people around them. 
and not just chameleons that disappear. When you read through Judges, they're not the role models. They, they become worse. And a brief overview of Judges, right? Like I said, it starts with Israel failing to do what God has said and to go and conquer the land. And then we get a glimpse of Israel's complete moral failures. And we are told about subsequent judges in Israel, and we see things get more violent, immoral, and more disturbing. The first few judges seem pretty good, just very violent stories. A man gets stabbed with a sword in the stomach so that the sword hilt disappears. An enemy killed by having a tent peg driven through his skull. Then we get a judge who ends up leading Israel into idolatry and a civil war among some of the tribes of Israel. A judge who is really just a thug, and he so doesn't know God that he actually sacrifices his daughter to please him. Samson is a violent, sex-crazed man who is hot-heated and seeks revenge at every turn. The tribe of Dan slaughters a peaceful city and builds a pagan temple in this new city they have conquered. And finally, Judges closes with the Israelites in Gibeah sexually abusing an Israelite woman. Then the other tribes, with this not just punishment, come in and just destroy them. And then as they regret this massive violence, they force the young women of Benjamin to pay the price. This book is drastic. It is a tragedy. We see a rapid decline of Israel as they go farther and farther from being the people of God. All because Israel does not know their God, they do not seek him, and they do not follow him. And the book of Judges is often described as the cycle of sin that Israel repeats in this downward cycle. So Israel first abandons God, worships idols, God brings punishment, then Israel cries out to God, God sends rescuer for a time, and then Israel does it all over again as they get worse and worse and worse. But I don't think calling it the sin cycle is the best way to label it, and I'll explain why in a moment, but I want us to sit with that, this cycle of sin repeating over and over as we start uh, our story this morning. So we'll be reading Judges 6, 1 through 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So we see here that Israel's blatant sin and rebellion meant they were undeserving of salvation. In the cycle I talked about, Israel is living in sin. Verse 1 says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so for seven years they suffered at the hand of Midian and the Amalekites, losing crops and animals. They were suffering so much that they would go and make dens and hide in the hills to avoid it. 
And they would do this because Midian and the Amalekites were nomadic. They would kind of travel around. And so the idea is that they would travel, they would make their rounds, and they came to this part of Israel when it was time for harvest. And they would just devastate this part of Israel. The crops would be taken, the livestock gone, and after plundering Israel of everything that they had, they would just move on to the next place. So Israel is suffering. And this suffering brings them to some aspect of humility. We're not told they repent, but we see that they at least cry out to God. And so God sends a prophet in the next part. Let's read that. Starting in verse uh, 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And you might be like, oh good, Israel has cried out, a prophet is sent, there's finally good news. Wrong. And he, the prophet, said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. He sends a prophet to answer, as we talked about with this cycle earlier, this is where we should be seen as the reader. Wait, is there going to be a deliverer? But that is not what we get. We get sent a message from God that just reiterates the covenant God made with Israel. And we're going to look at Joshua and read that covenant. Joshua 23. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriage with them so that you associate with them, and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap to you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. So Israel doesn't deserve to be saved. They chose their lot. They made their bed. It was plainly outlined for them. If you choose this, there is nothing good that is going to happen. So the prophet comes and has this moment where he's like, you chose this. You knew what was going to happen. You rejected God. And he leaves. And we should be left in this like tense moment of waiting, waiting to see what's next. Is God going to leave his people? What is going on? I mean, this is what Israel deserves, but, but is God just going to leave them? It seems like there's no hope. This is a heart-wrenching part of the story. We feel for the people. We know God is holy and just, and it, it leaves us tense. And this is serious, Israel rejecting God. It would be like if a man took his wife to a nice restaurant, and they sit down, and there's three chairs around this table. A woman comes up and sits down in the third chair, and this man thinks this is a great time to introduce his wife to his girlfriend. He says, honey, this is my girlfriend. You know, I love you with all my heart. We've been married all these years, but I also love my girlfriend. So I'm hoping we can all just get along. Now, after his wife has thrown her drink, the plate, the cup, everything at him, she's going to stand up and leave. This is not going to work, right? It's either her or me. And it's the same way with God. 
God is like, you can have me, you can have all of me in this relationship, but if you turn away, you're rejecting me. But as we're talking about with this series, that God graciously uses us. Broken vessels. And so instead of the cycle of sin, I want us to think of judges as the cycle of grace. God doesn't end the story there. Even though Israel sins and rejects God over and over in Judges for hundreds of years, God saves them and loves them. Calling it the cycle of sin puts the main focus of the story on the people. It says, right, I should be the main character. But they are not. I am not. You are not the main character. The focus is on God. It's his grace and love that invited us into loving relationship with him. And so we see in this next session that God brings himself as the main character, as the hero of this. Judges 6, starting in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abzerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So this is Gideon's call. And Gideon's call is really the call of the unworthy. And it may seem crazy, right, this call of Gideon. The prophet said Israel didn't deserve to be saved, and yet God is working. He is bringing about their salvation out of love and grace for his people. He is going to use this man, Gideon, like I said, it may seem weird, at least it did to me, that Gideon is called Almighty Man of Valor. We see this man scared and resist being mighty and courageous, and yet he's called a mighty man of valor. Gideon is hiding, trying to stay unseen from the enemy, and there isn't anything wrong with that, but he's not showing himself as a valiant warrior. He's hiding away, trying to protect his things, trying to protect himself. And really, as I was thinking about this, this makes me think of me, about what God calls me, right? When we come to Jesus, he says, you're now holy. You're now made new. And this is hard for me to believe sometimes. Because you look at my life, I struggle with holiness. I'm not perfect, and some days I don't feel holy at all. But again, the focus isn't on me in this beautiful narrative that God is telling. It's on him. The focus isn't on Gideon. It's on God. And so then Gideon asks in the next section, Hey, if you say God is really with us, why have I not seen any of the, the wonderful deeds that my parents have talked about that have been told to us that has been handed down? Picking up in verse 13. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. We already have 
the answer to Gideon's first question. God, why haven't I seen any of this? It's because Israel has rejected God. God is not going to bless Israel while they reject everything. It would be giving like a cookie to my son right after he hits his brother. He's going to think, I did the right thing, right? And then do it again. God's not going to bless them, but he will save them. Undeserved mercy and grace. The answer to this question, where are you, God? Is he's right here to give the deliverance that is so undeserved. Gideon is sent and told to go in his strength, really highlighting he doesn't have any. And this is the pivotal part of the story. Gideon doesn't bring much to the table, except he is going to follow God. And that is exactly what God wants. We get this sense of Gideon's kind of arguing with God. Gideon's ultimately concerned with his own comfort. It's why he's hiding away. It's why he's trying to protect his food. It's why he doesn't want to be the mighty man. God is saying, you, Gideon, but Gideon keeps bringing it back to all of Israel. Hey, God, isn't there somebody else? Just anybody else who can do it. My family's not that great. My tribe's not that great. There's got to be somebody else. But God is like, I chose you, Gideon. Gideon wants God's blessing of coming to save and make life easy again, but Gideon's not wanting to be the one that does the difficult thing and actually going and being the one that follows God. And so God brings it back to himself. Gideon, I will be with you. That is all you need. Yes, Gideon, your family is weak. Yes, Gideon, you are weak, but God is not. And we continue with their conversation in verse 17. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So what we see here, Gideon is not the example of behavior, but the recipient of God's grace. Throughout this story, Gideon asks for a sign three times, and there's even a fourth time God just gives him a sign due to his lack of trust. And so I want to take a moment to talk about signs. I hear often people looking for signs in life or basing decisions on God opening doors or closing windows, but this is not great decision-making as you are trying to seek and follow God. Gideon is not the example He shows us that we need a better Savior. We need Jesus, and Jesus is the one we are called to look like. Now, God is gracious. He does not rebuke Gideon or put him down for asking for a sign, but it does show his lack of faith and trust in God. I was struggling with a major decision, and I knew God wanted me to do something. Similar to Gideon, right? I knew God wanted me to make this decision, and I just didn't like it. So I was sitting next to this lake, praying, asking God for various signs. I was like, God, if you will make this bird do this, then I know this is what you want me to do. And like Gideon, I already knew what God wanted, and I didn't trust God to follow through with it. Paul talks about wanting to go share the gospel in a country and the Holy Spirit opening and closing doors. 
And God at times will come in and just shut a door and be like, you're not doing this. He's God. He can do that. But trying to make all my decisions with signs and doors and windows takes out the relationship and the pursuit of our Heavenly Father who wants to speak and to guide you. He has given us his spirit for this very thing. And when we are only looking for signs and doors, again, we put the focus on me, myself. What is convenient? What seems like an easy answer? Or it's our way to get out of following what God has said. The focus needs to be on Jesus. And we don't do this in any other area of life. I don't look at my two-year-old and say, hey, would you please eat your vegetables? And he goes, no. And I go, oh, that door closed. Oh, man. (laughs) Right? We don't do that anywhere else. Sometimes God will close doors or open others, but that is not the defining thing for decision-making as a follower of Jesus. We trust and we follow him. So let's continue with this story. Verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with the stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So God calls Gideon to exclusivity first before he can fulfill his mission. Before Gideon can go on his mission, he is given an assignment first. And it seems a weird thing, go save Israel, but first deal with this idolatry. This starts with a call to exclusivity. Gideon is called to worship God and God alone. Gideon had to get rid of his idol. He couldn't be continuing in the sin of what Israel's doing if he's going to be the one that is supposed to be leading. And this is actually his dad's idol. Gideon had to come back to what Israel and what all humanity is called to do, to worship the one true God and him alone. And it is scary. So Gideon does it in the secret of night. But we find out that it's not hard for the people of the town to learn that it's Gideon, and he's figured out. And the people react with violence. They want to kill him, but God steps in and shows power and protects him really supernaturally. And so as we're looking at the story of Gideon, I see three calls on us from this. The first is our call is the DTR, which if you don't know, stands for define the relationship. First, we need to define our relationship with God. I doubt you have an Asherah pole in your backyard or your house. Maybe you do, I don't know. But our heart is being pulled in all kinds of ways to other masters other than God. And we need to decide, are we going to be like Israel and Judges? who search after other gods and become completely unrecognizable? Or will we answer the call of exclusivity, destroy our idols, and serve God wholeheartedly, even in scary and hard things? It's the way Jesus says it, or it's idolatry. 
and a fake Jesus or a Jesus I make to look like me or the way I want Jesus to look is just as much an idol as the Asherah pole. When we do not know the character and desires of God, we will look more like his enemies than his followers. And it's not my intention this morning to make anyone feel beat up or belittled, but our hearts tend to think, how great am I? Look at how good I am. And the reality is, I am not good. My heart struggles. My heart sometimes wants what is evil and wrong. And John says in 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And often I hear this verse used as like, oh, I'm going to witness, I'm going to tell this someone that they're really a sinner. But, but John is writing to the church here. He's like, if you're going to say that you have no sin, you're a liar. And so I want to be very hard on this this morning, not to shame, but so that we can be humbled enough to be honest. Because I have been hard on Gideon too. But the point is, I see myself in Gideon. We should see ourselves in Gideon. He's scared. He's a coward. He has issue giving his heart to other things. We often want to follow Jesus, but tend to chase other things, to give our affections at best and our whole hearts at worst to these other things. Israel's worship of other God really was a matter of fact, logic, or even seems pragmatic at times. The worship of many gods was each, was each one had a specific thing they would bless. So you had your god of rain for your harvest, or fertility so you could have kids, or battle so you could win your wars, and the list goes on. Right? It seems logical. They, they are doing all these things. They want these gods to bless them. We even do that. We think the things we do are practical or make sense because of the culture we live in or pointing our fingers at the world, saying, look at their sin, all the while being comfortable in my own. And you can get so caught up getting angry at those who don't follow Jesus for acting like they don't follow Jesus, that you forget to ignore the sin in your own life. Paul even talks to the Roman church about this. He says, you point at the people and go, you're so bad for doing all these awful things out in public, but yet in your hearts you have the same root sins or you do the same things in secret. We can worship money, being so anxious over it that it controls us, wanting more and more and more things. The person who wants money just to go spend and the miser that hoards it has that same problem of loving money. We can worship entertainment. Just pull out your phone and check your average screen time. Or how often we just turn on the TV and we just ignore life. We ignore people, even our kids, to watch the newest TV show or settle on the couch for hours of football or another sporting event. I tell my kids they are more important on, than my phone. And one day I was sitting, I was just so tired, I was sitting being on my phone, and my son was like, Daddy, Daddy, will you play with me? Will you play with me? I'll be like, oh, in just a couple minutes. And he says, Dad, you say you love me more than your phone, but why are you on it so much? And it broke me. Our politics can become idols. The truth is, if you follow Jesus, you belong to an entirely different kingdom, and it's not America. It's Jesus' kingdom. 
But yet we buy into the political us versus them mentality, and many of us have abdicated our gospel witness for political jargon and sharp tongues. We get so busy hating people for thinking they're different than us that we lose all credibility with the world. We show we have no capacity for love or compassion or even to share the good news of grace with people who are different. Sex has become just as much an idol and master in the church. Many would say, I would never have an affair. Statistically, it still happens in the church. But even for those who would never have an affair, there is still the staggering rate of secret pornography usage in the church. 50% of all Christian men and 20% of all Christian women say that they're addicted to it. Or we linger over photos or movies. We've bought into our culture and what it says that we just go along with it. And like Israel, not knowing sometimes that we've been dragged along and look like the culture around us instead of sticking out, being holy and set apart. Work and success or power can be a master and an idol for us. A successful doctor one day was on a way to a hunting trip and he suffered what should have been a fatal, fiery car accident. And somehow he survived. And this doctor lost seven of his fingers and his success was gone all at once. And he wrote about it in this way. God put an absolute halt on my life. I was so busy being so successful I was on such a fast track that God was part of my life, but he was not the most important part. He was not on the throne of my heart or at the center of my universe. I was at the center. I don't believe God caused the fire, but I believe God allowed it because he wanted to get my attention. Like a parent who tries to get through to a child, God grabbed me by the shoulders, sat me down, and said, if I want you to listen to me, That was the beginning of the spiritual awakening in my life. And so I want us to ask some honest questions. And in his book, Not a Fan, which I highly recommend, the author Kyle Eidelman asks four questions. And how you answer each question can help you show what is competing with Jesus for your affection. Uh, And these four questions are on the discussion side of your notes if you want to look at them. The first one is, what do you sacrifice your money on? What what are you putting your money into shows what you find most valuable. When you are hurt, where do you go for comfort? Right? Where are you seeking happiness and fulfillment? What disappoints or frustrates you most? Kyle, as he's talking about this, uh, shares the story of him watching his favorite college football team, and they had this, like, game-winning throw right at the end, and he's freaking out and getting so excited and screaming at the TV. And his daughter said to him, Dad, I have never seen you more excited. And he thought about that. He's like, I've baptized people. I've been around to see people saved. I get to be a part of what God's doing, and sadly, my daughter has never seen me more excited than a college football game. What, what is it that you get really excited about? In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller addresses a number of different idols that our culture worships. And at one point, he points out that all of us worship surface idols and deep idols. 
And so we might find that, man, I really, really value money, and I'm noticing that as a tendency, but deep down what I'm really wanting is to control every aspect of my life. And so we need to look deeper than just surface-level struggles with money or lust or entertainment or whatever it may be. I want to be very vulnerable and honest with you, church. There was a very dark point in my life when I was in college. I was looking for hope and joy everywhere but God. Life was hard. No one thought to see if the Bible college student was struggling. Life got worse and worse and worse, and I wasn't sure if life was worth living anymore. I went to a counselor and was diagnosed as an addict, and I started recovery, in which I countered Jesus like I never had before. But underneath all these things I was doing to just try to make myself happier, I learned much deeper issues. I wanted to control everything. I didn't trust God. I wanted it my way. Life written by my story. And you know what? I was terrible at writing my own story. I made a terrible God of my life. And it was by giving everything to Jesus that my life was changed and made whole, and he is worth it. He is worth forsaking all other masters to follow him with our entire being. And last of our calls is the mission. When we see we have our service call, Gideon was called to save Israel from the Midianites. Gideon's call is not the same as ours. We should read this story. We shouldn't read this story and go out and literally fight. We would look more like the town people in Frankenstein or Beauty and the Beast that just pick, pick up our pitchforks because something seems right or scary. But should we should ask, what is God calling me to do? calling you to love your enemies, pray for those that persecute you, speak truth in love, give of what you have, share God's love and good news of Jesus to others, seek the good of others, lay down your preferences for the sake of unity within the church. And you can go and read Matthew 28, 18 through 20, but, but to make disciples, to actually go and make disciples in teaching people. You are going to be asked to do hard and difficult things. But like Gideon, God wants to work through you. And then we get to our legacy. And I want to read how the story of Gideon ends. This is Judges 8, starting in verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendant and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put in the, his city in Aphra, and all the people worship, or whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family, 
So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So what is your legacy going to be? We see in Gideon, his first legacy was to Israel. Gideon started out good. He's like, no, 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 no. I can't lead you, nor can my son. It has to be God. But we see Gideon ultimately fails. He brought them. He led them into idol worship that lasted much longer than he was just alive. And the story resets that Israel has rejected God again. And sadly, Gideon, the judge who was supposed to lead them in righteousness, led them into this idolatry. We see a legacy to his family. We see in Judges 9 that one of his son, sons wants to lead Israel so bad to be in charge that he goes around the city and he starts spreading these rumors about how awful his brothers are. And then he goes out and he kills all 70 of his brothers so that he can be in charge. Because Gideon was not steadfast in his legacy, we see another one end in tragedy. So I want to challenge you, do not forget your resolve, your decision. If you're wanting to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, take the steps to do it and do it well. Right? Don't, don't just, especially when you're thinking about your family, don't just bring kids to church when they're really little. Or don't just hand them off to the family pastor and be like, hey, teach them about Jesus. We get like 40 hours a year with kids. You guys get the whole week. Be intentional. Take the steps. Gideon and Israel did not know God deeply. So I encourage you, know God. Seek after him. You have his word. Read it. And don't just read it and just set it down. Study it. Right? I talked about some, some things to help you understand. The Bible Project. Kyle Eidelman's book, Not a Fan. Like, like, find things that are going to help you read it and understand what God is saying. Not just read it with our Western mindset, looking for role models or heroes. We're going to miss the point entirely. So put in the work. Read it. There's a great book called Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus, Why the Jewishness of Jesus Matters. It helps you understand the culture around where Jesus is talking, to understand the parables he's telling, the stories he's telling. Ask questions. Find another believer. Go get coffee with. Encourage one another. Join a life group. Be somewhere where you're encouraging one another, pointing each other to Jesus. This is what the body of Christ is for. So what is your decision going forward this morning? We talked about the pattern of sin, but calling it rather the pattern of grace. That we fail time and time again, and God gives us grace. Even when no one in Israel was good enough to stand up to Midian, God did not leave them. He rose up an unlikely man to save Israel, and this points to our great God. And so, what are you thinking makes you great? We talked about stories earlier. Captain America, strong and fast, heroic. Batman is rich. Elsa and Anna are wonderful princesses in the most pretty dresses. We tend to love stories of smart, beautiful, heroic characters that we wish we were. But as we look at the stories in the Bible, especially the story of Gideon, it isn't him who is the hero. He regularly doubts God, 
And now God meets him where he's at, and that says so much more about God than Gideon. And it goes through all this paring down of the army to where there's only, it goes from 10,000 to 300. And God specifically says, I am going to make your army so small that no one can get the glory in all of Israel except for me. And I think there are two responses to this sermon that are both extremes. One extreme is being puffed up with pride. I'm good. I got this. I'm the good follower of God. I'm a good person. I'm not like Gideon. And the other extreme says, I, I'm not good enough. God can't love me. I've, I've done too much wrong. I've messed up too much. I'm too broken. And the point is that both groups, whichever you fall into, are both messed up. So to the first group who thinks you are okay and everyone else is, everyone, all the other people are the problems, I'm going to be really honest. You really aren't that great. You fall short. Your pride is just the beginning. Your pride is a hindrance to God using you. You will turn out more like Gideon at the end of his life, worshiping a God that you created to fit your goodness rather than the God of the Bible. God is holy. Be humble. God is loving. Love people. Be honest about your failures and flaws, and you'll actually notice a greater love and appreciation and admiration for our Savior. To the second group, you who think you are so bad, God couldn't love or use you. Your sins are not bigger than God's love and grace like we have seen today. Israel failed and rejected God over and over and over again, and God saved them over and over and over again. This is God's grace, not the cycle of sin, but the cycle of God's grace and love. To love you, and in Jesus, get rid of your sin, to make you new, so as you trust him, go to him, give him the sin you've been holding on to, he heals you. Gideon is mentioned in what we often call the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And honestly, when, when I read the story of Gideon, I'm kind of like, why God? Why is he in the hall of faith? But some may look at my life and ask God, why does God use Stephen? You may look at your life and ask, why would God want to use me? But he absolutely does. This whole series, we're looking at broken vessels. That's the whole point. Those that seem ordinary or unlikely are the ones God often calls to change the world for his glory. Gideon's story gives us hope that God is the author and the main character. He uses broken vessels like me for his glory. And there is grace and patience as we pursue him. And then it's our job to point to him, that I am nothing and he is everything. So I encourage you, recognize your need for God. Recognize your need for God. I'm going to ask us to stand again. And I have a prayer that I've written out that we're going to read. But I want to challenge you. After hearing this morning, we are only, you only read it if you really want God to use you. If you're willing to set everything aside and let God use you, I want you to read it. And when we're done reading that, the worship team is going to come up. So let's read that together. Dear Jesus,
we get the privilege to serve a God that uses broken vessels like you and like me to write a story that points all to his glory. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.